0: Good afternoon everyone and um, welcome to uh, the third part of a five-part series um, on the webinar series on COVID-19 vaccines. Um, This uh, five-part webinar series is an educational, um, medical educational session targeting uh, healthcare workers. It is jointly organized by the Malaysian Society of Infection Control and Infectious Diseases, or MIISIT, and uh, the Institute for Clinical Research in NIH. Um, I'm Dr. Benedict Sim, I'm an infectious disease uh, physician in hospital Sungai Buloh, and I'm also uh, the coordinator for the clinical guidelines on COVID-19 vaccination in Malaysia. Um, Thank you for joining us live from five social media platforms. Um, for the question and answer, as usual, please type, type in your questions in the Slido app. We would try to address as many questions as possible. Um, this is a medical education session, so we will address questions related to this topic. We will not be addressing any policy-related questions as this will be beyond our scope here. For CPD points, um, all frontliners, healthcare workers and allied health teams Remember to collect your CPD points by filling up the online attendance form. In case you missed it, we will broadcast it again after the QA session. And uh, please double check your email address before submitting. After the seminar, after the webinar, the presenter slides will be made available on all our social media websites and um, email address. And if you would like to re watch this session, you can go to our clinical updates in COVID-19 YouTube channel or listen on our podcast channel when it is available. For this afternoon, we are indeed honoured and privileged to have three panellists with us from different fields. We have got Dr. Lo Lili, who is an infectious disease physician at Hospital Sultana Baya. Uh, we've got Dr. Ong Tian Lee, and a neurologist from Hospital Sungai Bulo and uh, Dr. Vina Selvaratnam a hematologist working in hospital Ampa, to discuss an important topic, which is the side effects and concerns about COVID-19 vaccination. There will be another webinar next week that that, um, discusses allergic reactions and anaphylactic reactions to to the vaccine. But for today, it is the non-allergic and non-anaphylactic side effects that we will be concerned about. On behalf of the organizers, my ICID and uh, Institute for Clinical Research NIH, I would like to thank the panelists, Dr. Lo, Dr. Ong, Dr. Vina, for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Our first speaker is Dr. Lo Lili. She's an infectious disease physician in hospital Sutana Baya. She is a Kedah State Infectious Disease uh, Physician and the Chief Coordinator of State Infection Control and AMS Committee. She's also a committee member of the Asia Fungal Working Group under International Society for Human and Animal Mycology and she's a good friend of mine. Without further ado, I'll now invite Dr. Lo to share her presentation.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ben. Good afternoon and Salam Ramadan to all my Muslim colleagues out there. Just let me share my slide first. Hope everyone can see my slide now. Okay. Now, uh, the topic today, as Dr. Ben had mentioned, is about side effects and concerns. So, when you're talking about vaccine or vaccine acceptance, we have to look into different perspectives. Number one is the severity of disease. Here, of course, we're talking about COVID-19 disease. So, is COVID-19 a severe disease? As a clinicians that have been seeing and managing COVID-19, yes, we do see quite a number of patients that develop severe COVID-19 infections that require ICU admissions and subsequently they complicated with a lot of sequelae. So indeed, it could be a very severe disease when you have COVID-19, especially when you have concomitant medical conditions. Therefore, in this situation, we do need a good vaccine with high efficacy to prevent the transmissions or to prevent uh, cases or people that progress into severe disease when contracted COVID-19. When we have the vaccine, now we need to talk about the safety of the vaccine. So we need to strike a delicate balance in between all these aspects when you consider when, when we're talking about vaccine. So this is my outline. I'll just briefly recap about the types of vaccine. This, this is to facilitate our talk in, uh, in terms of the side effects. So I'll talk a little bit on the side effect or adverse event regards to local and system adverse events. And regards to the adverse events of interest, so I'll just briefly touch on it because my colleagues, Dr. Ong and also Dr. Bina, will bring you through and elaborate on this interesting topic. And then my main task here is to discuss about the pre-vaccination assessment, why we need to have a PVA, okay, and how are we going to do or conduct the PVA? So everyone is familiar with this mRNA vaccine, okay, because the community or the Pfizer vaccine the first vaccine that registered in Malaysia. Okay, it's important, or it's become famous because that it provides very great uh, vaccine efficacy. Even when it tested the real world scenario, the effectiveness is almost more than ninety percent. So this is the, the data that of this mRNA vaccine from the Israel, meaning the real world data. It's not only protecting a person from getting the asymptomatic infections, but it's also prevent hospital admissions. As well as prevent a person from progress into severe disease. So the second group of vaccine is inactivated vaccine. Again, okay, most of us are familiar with it as well. That is Sinovac or CoronaVac. Okay, the efficacy varies from 50 to 91 percent. Although in phase phase three trial, the efficacy is about 50.7 percent. Now the third group of vaccine is viral vector vaccine. Okay. This viral rectal vaccine has captured the attention right now in the media or in the news. Okay. We have consignal vaccine from China, Janssen, okay, Spanik, and also Extra All these vaccines are similar in the sense that they're using the adenovirus, okay, so uh, carrying the mRNA spike proteins. The only difference is the serotype of the adenovirus that's been used in this and every type of the vaccine. For Cancina using the serotype 5, as for Jensen is using a serotype 26, as for Spanik using combination of a serotype 5 and 26, and extra is a little bit special. Instead of using the human adenovirus, it's using the chimpanzee virus. So all these vaccines are from the same class, but they are not identical in, in terms of manufacturing and also the adenovirus. So, this is the classifications of the adverse event solicited can be divided into localized adverse event or systemic adverse event okay unsolicited unsolicited uh, it can be adverse event of interest or severe adverse event meaning that uh, adverse event that le- uh, may leading into um, death or permanent disability so when the committee or the study partic- uh, study committee uh, investigate about the adverse event, they will consider a few of the factors. One of it, they will compare with the placebo arm to see whether there's any standout signal. Okay, they will also compare it with the background rates in unvaccinated populations and also will take into consideration the persons or the, vac- the, the vaccinees or the vaccine recipient, whether they have a pre-existing illness or risk factors that may put them at higher risk in developing the adverse event. So this is the community from Pfizer vaccine. Okay. I just want to highlight here the common side effect, for example, the injection side of pain and also swelling or fatigue or headache is more common after second dose, okay. more often after second dose rather than in first dose. And usually a person after receiving the vaccine, soon after they may experience the side effect, Okay, it peaks usually around day one. Subsequently, all the side effects may disappear. Okay? and The side effect is more common among people that are less than 55 years old. This is for pertaining to Pfizer vaccine. Okay? This is just a summary of the local and the systemic side effect of this community vaccine. I'm going to share here a case report. 59 years old women with a known case of right lung CA with metastasis to the ribs she undergone chemotherapy and therefore proceed with the uh, screening or staging PET-CT. Incidentally, they were found that she had this left axillary limb adenopathy. On further questioning, only notice that actually she volunteered the, the history that she received the vaccine five days before the imaging. Therefore, in this scenario, it's considered that the left axillary limb node is not significant. It's not related to the malignancy disease. So, Post-vaccination lymphadenopathy is one of the unsolicited adverse events related to the vaccine. Okay, It's possibly related to the vaccine and it can occur in the neck and also the arm regions. In this journal, New England journal mentions that the reported cases within two to four days after vaccination and usually it disappeared within 10 days. So this is another case reviewed by the Spain uh, group. Whereby they noticed that around twenty healthcare workers developed supracavicular lymph nodes in association in association with the mRNA vaccine. Okay, quite similar. Okay, mainly one to day nine post vaccinations. Okay, and it, sometimes it may take longer for the lymph node to resolve, up to 20, 32 days. Okay, but good thing about it is benign, self limiting. Okay, and it's believed that when a person develops supraclavicular limb adenopathy, it's associated with the technique of injections, high point injections. So, what is important here is mainly if you're dealing or you're treating a person with the malignancy, okay, if you need to subject a patient for imaging, you need to consider these as two factors. If you think that the imaging for screening or surveillance is not Uh, urgent, you may want to defer it to four to six weeks after the injections or the vaccinations. Okay, and you probably have to coordinate or talk to the PPV team, mini vaccination team, that try to avoid the injections or the vaccine on the same side that may, uh, may confuse you later in terms of assessment of the imaging later. Try to inject on the contralateral arm according to the location of the known cancer. So, this is the data uh, extracted from the Pfizer study. Okay. So, during the study, it was actually noticed there was some um, adverse event, for example, bell palsy, convulsion, Guillain-Barre syndrome, immune thrombocytopenia that was found in the arm of people that received the vaccine. So, when we compared with the adjusted expected event, there was no statistically significant increased risk. So this is what is done usually in study. Okay, it's not in real world. This is in the study. Now, next vaccine is Coronavax or Sinovac. This is a phase three trial that carried out in Brazil. Okay, so it's a big disappointment when this data came out, whereby there's only fifty point seven percent efficacy in terms of to prevent systemic COVID nineteen. Okay, but when you look at the prevention of hospitalization and severe disease the efficacy actually very good almost 100%. So this is a real world experience in Chile about corona Okay. So in the real world experience the effective effectiveness of this vaccine to prevent symptomatic covid-19 67%, to prevent hospitalizations was about 85% and to prevent icu admission 89. Okay as good as 89% and to prevent death is about 80%. So there's much discrepancy between the world experience and the, the percentage that achieved during trial. And with regards to the local and systemic side effect, okay, in CoronaVac, the systemic reaction is more common after the first dose, unlike mRNA vaccine. And next is the extra okay. This is a vaccine that already caught a lot of attention in the news reporting nowadays. Okay, This is a phase one, phase three trial and quite similar with uh, Sinovac vaccine, whereby the local and systemic reaction is less common after the second dose. Okay? and It's also less common among elders people, for example, more than 65 years old. Unfortunately, somewhere in March-April, okay, there were uh, signals or safety signals that shows that you know, there were uh, vaccine recipients that developed covenous sinus thrombosis following a lot of extensive investigation being carried out by various parties, including the EMA. So this is the initial reports produced by the EMA, whereby from the 18 cases of several venous sinus thrombosis or several venous thrombosis, mainly affecting women, okay, they are from the age group less than 60 years old. okay. The time to onset range from 1 to 14 days, with a median of 8 days. And there was concomitant thrombocytopenia in 67 uh, percents of the cases so when you're comparing the risk of this uh, thrombosis event after receiving azac vaccine which is about five per million people okay whereas the background rates of cbt is around two to five cases and bear in mind that the background rates may not be accurate as this is not uh, notifiable conditions it's quite difficult to correct a very uh, accurate data when this is not the Conditions that you know, people has been paying attention to. So this is a quite a recent paper. It's not been published yet. Okay, not yet uh, undergone the peer review. It's done by the Oxford University and is carried out in, uh, in America, the States. Okay, so what they did was they comparing the cerebral venous thrombosis event. It was a retrospective study involving about the five hundred thousand people that confirmed as COVID nineteen cases. As well as people that uh, receive mRNA vaccine, be it Pfizer or Moderna. Okay, again, I emphasize that this study was carried out in America. In US, they do not have AZ vaccine. So the data on on your very right column, the data on AZ is extrapolated from EMA uh, reports. So we cannot compare the EMA report head to head with the uh, triggers that are produced by this study, as they are in from the different background and different study protocol. So what they found here in this uh, simple retrospective study was, okay, the incidence of the uh, thrombosis event among the people that infected with COVID nineteen infections are much higher as compared to those people that received the vaccine. Okay, thirty nine events per million people versus four events per million people, 10 times higher, okay? But again, I would like to emphasize that this is a study whereby the cohort is not matched against the age, gender, or the underlying medical conditions. It's just a quick way for them to tease out the data, retrospective data from the electronic database to find out the risk of thrombocytosis if a person were to have COVID-19 infections compared to the background or compared to the persons that received the vaccine. In such, the EMA again said that the clotting event is, could be associated with the vaccine, but it's listed as a very rare side effect. It's not common. Okay, 10 times more common to have a blood clot if we were to have the COVID 19 infections compared to we receive the vaccine alone. So, Spanic, okay, the other uh, uh, vaccine acted very fast. Soon after that, they have put up a statement in the website saying that Spatnik have never encountered or, or cases of uh, clot, blood clot thrombosis throughout the rule-out of the vaccinations. Okay. It claims that even though they fall under the same class of vaccine, but they have different ways of manufacturing and also they're using a different type of the, uh, virus, uh, adenovirus. Therefore, we should not actually, what the dimensions the here, It should not actually extrapolate from the study from other vaccine and using on this vaccine. This is a statement by Spanik. So now, what is, what is the fate of the vaccine, the AZ vaccine right now? Okay. After a study looking at the 86 such cases in EU, the EMA concluded the benefits of the vaccine still outweigh the beast of the virus in terms of hospitalisation and death. Therefore, some of the European countries, including Australia and UK, still continue to roll out AZ vaccine, but they put certain clause on it. So most of the country says that, you know, it ought to be used in the younger age group. Of course, there are some some countries, for example, Denmark and Norway, they put a definite stop for the roll out AZ vaccine in their country. So it depends on the country policy and the situation's there. this is interesting, J&J vaccine. When this vaccine was first introduced, it was thought that it could be one of the most, most sought-after vaccines because it came in a very simple one-dosing regimen. Okay? Unfortunately, recently there was data or reports about the uh, uh, thrombosis event among the in- individuals that received the vaccine. Okay? The incidence is about six cases detected in more than 6.8 million doses Onset is around three to day 3 to day 13 post-vaccinations against more common among females in the age that less than 50 years old. So Johnson & Johnsons, uh, I mean the CDC decided to put on hold until they have investigated or they have uh, more data about the safety to roll out J&J. Okay, and this is another latest uh, report, safety reports about A Z A C vaccine. It found that uh, there are around uh, five cases uh, five persons that develop what they call it capillary leak syndrome characterized by leakage of free into tissue associated with a drop of blood pressure. So it's still under investigations. So we have not much data to share at this moment. So we shall wait for the PRAC to provide the uh, investigations reports. Now, just one slide about post-vaccinations and epileptic. So this chapter will be uh Elaborated by our allergies as, as well as our consultant dermatologist is our next, next uh, webinar. So stay tuned to our next week webinar if you're interested in this topic. So what I would like to highlight here is, you're looking at a coronal VAC, AZ, Janssen, Spanik. During the trial, the anaphylactic reaction is not common. When the trial is done among about thousands of uh, patients. But when you roll out in a real-world scenario, for example, Community and Modena, this data based on US data. Actually, they could identify around 4.7 cases per million people that develop anaphylactic in terms of when talking about community. So it just shows that you know, uh, anaphylactic what was not noticeable in a trial, okay, but it's only noticeable during the full rollout when it involved millions and millions of people that receiving receiving the, the uh, vaccine. So it just shows that it's a probably an extreme rare side effect. It could be a side effect, it is a side effect, but it's extremely rare. Okay. But comparing with the incidence of anaphylactic va- in influenza, of course, the MINA vaccine, the incidence of anaphylactic is higher. So, with regards to AEFI reports, okay, so we would like to encourage people or vaccine recipients to report or self-report the AFI. So we need to collect more data, then all the data that is uh, we collected is, is will be an inf- useful information for us. It probably will be a safety si- signal for the committee to raise a red flag to see whether we need to intervene or investigate further. So the vaccine recipient should either okay, notify the mild to moderate side effect through mice jetra. If they do not have mice they can approach any of the healthcare facility to fill in the ADR form manually. You can the healthcare workers or the facilities can actually help the, the recipients, vaccine recipient to fill in the ADR form. Okay. Alternatively, they could actually download the, the form from the web page and NPRA web page. Just look under the, the column consumer and, and look for reporting side effects column. Download the form, then you can actually uh, report it online or fax it or email it or even post it to the given address to NPRA. So as for serious adverse event, usually when you're talking about serious adverse event, the recipient would have been uh, consulted or admitted to hospital. So it is duty of the attending clinicians to do the reporting. As mentioned here, if you think that this is a serious adverse event, you have to notify within 24 hours, subsequently followed by a written report to NPRA. So this will be a duty of the healthcare facilities. So this is a pathway, the algorithm that I have explained area. It can be find can be found in our uh, guidelines. So our clinical guidelines on COVID nineteen vaccination in Malaysia just been uh, released about a week ago. Okay, you can click on the download link here to download the uh, guidelines, It's about 110 pages. We also. Can refer to the consensus t- statement by the societies in Malaysia, for example, Hematological Society as well uh, as our rheumatological societies. Now, when we're talking about phase two vaccination program, okay, phase two is mainly focusing on priority group. Okay, priority group meaning elderly people as well as patients that have got concomitant medical conditions, which make them at higher risk of uh, getting severe illness for COVID-19. Some of the people from a fall under this priority group may need PVA or pre vaccination assessment. Okay, the aim or the purpose of pre vaccination assessment is to decide whether the patients can receive the vaccine at any time, any, con- any convenient time, or we have to defer the vaccination to a further date. This is more pertaining to people that are on immunosuppressive agents. Okay, or this person is considered not suitable to receive the vaccine at all for some reason okay and also we have to decide uh, whether this patient is suitable to receive vaccine in a community vaccination center or the patient must come to hospital so that the person or the uh, the, the patient will receive the proper uh, monitoring after receiving the injections it's also very important to elicit the history of severe allergy reaction. For example, allergic to PEG component, which will be elaborated in next week webinar. So basically, there are three groups of patients that require PVA. First group is those people that are immunocompromised, either they are on chemotherapy or receiving some immunosuppressive agents. Okay, so we need to decide about the optimal timing for vaccinations and to inform the patients that there is insufficient data on vaccination uh, efficacy in view of the immunocompromised status. Okay, But having said so, the vaccine do not interact or have uh, any side of, uh, interactions with the, the, the immunosuppressive agent. Mainly, we worry that if a person's immune system is not uh, normal, is the person's immune system is not great or, or normal, so the response towards the vaccine may not be adequate. Okay so the second group of persons will be patients with bleeding tendency or patients that on medications which may make them more prone to be bleeding therefore we need to have a hemostatic precautions and the third group will be those people that has got significant history of severe allergy reactions or allergic to multiple classes of drugs and this person this group of people certainly would need to be received a vaccine in hospital setup whereby we will impose all these uh, allergic reactions precautions. They will be monitored for a longer period after receiving the vaccine. And I put up the fourth group here mainly it's line line, or either it's for frail elderly patients or people that with terminal illness, but yet they are not actively deteriorating, whereby they may still be benefited from the vaccine. So, timing for vaccinations. okay. All this can be found in our guideline. I just put out a few common scenarios that people often ask. Can a person that with acute illness receive the vaccine? Yes, the answer is yes, but you have to defer the vaccine until the person has fully recovered from the acute illness, meaning discharged from hospital, then they are well. Okay. Can a person who previously had uh, COVID infections receive the vaccine? The answer is yes. But you have to wait until the person already recovered from COVID 19 infection, being discharged already, okay, these continued isolations. And theoretically, because post infection, they should have at least three months of natural immunity. So, in that scenario, it's not an urgency to put them under the priority group. You can actually defer them to, for vaccination up to three months from the time, counting from the time that they have the infections. Okay. Now, for persons who's been quarantined or at quarantine centre under the HSO, okay, being a close contact, you can consider for vaccinations after the person has been complete has completed the quarantine and they are considered to be asymptomatic, may they do not have active infections at the point in time. You can consider uh, to list them as the uh, vaccine recipient. Now, for a person that recently have received any kind of vaccine. Be it the influenza vaccine or hepatitis B booster, you need to delay the vaccinations until two weeks. Okay. So many of the intervals between the two different types of vaccines has to be a minimum of two weeks. Okay. And for persons that are anti or anti agents, okay, in the presence of warfarin, as long as the usual INR monitoring is less than four, the person may be, may, may go ahead with the vaccinations. Okay? But with the advice that on the day of vaccinations, okay, to only take the warfarin, the DOAC or lower molecule weight apparent only after they have received the vaccine injections, not before. This will delay. You don't have to miss any dose, just take the vaccine after the injections. Now, for individuals that who are receiving immunosuppressive or immunomodulating biological agents, please discuss with the healthcare provider regards to the optimal timing for vaccinations. Don't deny them from the chance of getting a vaccine, but you have to discuss with the healthcare provider as they know the conditions better. So make your choice, okay? Which one on the right or the left that depicted in the comics, okay? We hope that with the increased uptake of vaccines uh, in the country, it will be something like this that picture here in Israel. Okay, you know that as Israel is a one of the first countries that roll out vaccination program, the good uptake there. Subsequently, you can see that the number of people that contracted the COVID nineteen disease reduced significantly, and the number of people that require mechanical ventilation reduced. So ICU bed is one of the very important resources. Not only we have to cater for COVID nineteen, we have to COVID for non COVID nineteen patients. So this is very valuable resources to us. Okay, Again, that is my last slide.
0: With that, i pass it back to Dr. Ben. Thank you, Dr. Lo, for that uh, insightful presentation. I'm sure you will have um, questions for Dr. Lo. Please type in your questions in um, Slido. We will only start um, answering the questions after the third presentation in the interest of time. Yeah. So our next uh, speaker is Dr. Ong Tianli, Lee, who actually works with me here in hospital Sungai Bulo. She's a neurologist here. She's got 14 years of uh, working experience and is currently in the neurology subspeciality since um, January 2017. She has been gazetted as a physician in internal medicine in 2016, completed her fellowship training in movement disorders in Westmead Hospital in September 2020. Without further ado, I'd like to invite Dr. Ong to share her presentation. Dr. Ong. Thank
2: you, Dr. Tan. Good afternoon, everyone. I'll be talking on the possible neurological complications following COVID-19 vaccines. And this is my disclaimer. And the content of the topic basically focuses on the common and uncommon neurological manifestations. I'll be talking in general, what are the uh, uh, neurological um, features that we should know, but will not focus on individual case reports. And uh, the uh, purpose of this presentation is to share knowledge on what we know as well as what we don't know, hopefully that um, when these cases present at the primary care setting or in the emergency department, uh, these cases can be picked up quickly and referred to the appropriate team for further management. So let let us dive immediately on the common neurological side effects for all vaccines. Headache is um, the common neurological side effect, as mentioned by Dr. Lowe earlier. It is, however, short lived self-limiting and usually lasting about 24 to 48 hours. And commonly in mRNA vaccine, it is more so after the second dose of vaccination. And uh, CDC actually recommends against use of ANFID or acetaminophen as prophylactic prior to vaccination. There is a concern that ANFID may inhibit enzyme cyclooxygenase one and two, and may modulate immune response to COVID-19 vaccine. In addition, antipyratics were said to be able to reduce magic antibody response to vaccination in infants. And that's why CDC comes up with the recommendation. However, there's no specific studies uh, done so far to address this concern with regards to COVID-19 vaccination. In fact, the ex- in the extra exenica clinical trials, several sites actually use prophylactic analgesia um, uh, paracetamol with no apparent detrimental effect on the subsequent antibody response. And therefore, if headache develops after vaccination, the use of n or acetaminophen are not contraindicated and would be considered 1st line treatment. In certain patients with migraine, migraine may flare up. And uh, some patients may even develop visual aura for the first time after immunization. They usually last approximately three to five days. And migraine patients who are on triptans, CGRT, and other treatments can continue with their treatment during uh, COVID-19 vaccination. And if let's say one of our patients presents to us with atypical headache, let's say the headache presents um, manifestation with facial involvement, forehead, pain, eye pain, perhaps you should consider there's the possibility of herpes zoster reactivation. There's an observational study monitoring post-vaccination adverse event in 491 patients with stable autoimmune inflammatory rheumatic disease. This patient had rheumatoid arthritis and ziragin. There are four patients in this 491 patients developed first episodes of herpes zoster and most of them developed after the first dose and one of the patients among these six uh, patients had herpes zoster op- ophthalmicus presenting a severe intense headache with rash on the forehead. And therefore in susceptible individuals, perhaps we need to consider this differential diagnosis if there is atypical presentation of headache. However, so far there is only one paper published addressing this condition in, autoimmune, uh, in patients with autoimmune inflammatory rheumatic disease. Whether or not a similar condition can be observed in other autoimmune inflammatory disease, we are unsure and we might need to wait for more evidence uh, and further publication on this particular topic. The concern about neurological complications from COVID-19 vaccination escalated in the end of 2020 when transverse malitis was reported in three patients during AstraZeneca vaccine trial. And transverse myelitis is inflammation of the spinal cord. Patient can present with lower limb weakness, bowel and bladder dysfunction, as well as sensory level. So in a paper published by the Lancet Neurology in January this year, in 12,000 recipients of Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, there's one patient who developed transverse myelitis, occurred 14 days after the vaccine goes. Um, it involves a uh, 37-year-old women with no prior medical problems. Uh, the two additional cases were considered unlikely related to the vaccine because one had pre-existing multiple sclerosis, and the other occurred in the control group. And therefore, this one case report, uh, this one case reported, we are unsure whether it is coincidental or there is association with the vaccine. As uh, for both palsy. There are seven cases of Bell's palsy reported in the 37,000 mRNA vaccine recipients, four from Pfizer therapy and the other three from Modena. Six of them occurred after the second dose. The FDA observed the frequency of Bell's palsy is consistent with the expected background rate in general population. However, there's an imbalance in the incidence of Bell's palsy following vaccination compared with the placebo arm. In the case of Pfizer, there are there's zero cases reported in the placebo group, but four cases in the vaccination group. And therefore, FDA recommends you need to look into this again. And in post-marketing vaccination, so far there are two cases reported. One involves a young man in his 30s, developed Bell's palsy five days after his first injection. And the other is a lady in, his, in her 50s who had recurrent bell's palsy developed facial palsy a couple of days after the second injection. For Guillain Barry syndrome, data from mRNA vaccine clinical trials showed no participant developed GBS in the trial. And for post marketing case reports, there is one case published in February this year describing an 82 year old female presented with generalized body AIDS. Procedure and difficulty in walking two weeks after the first dose of Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Fortunately, the lower limb weakness was not severe and she improved after IVIG therapy. The estimated risk of GBS in the world is approximately one to two cases per 100,000 people per year. And the lifetime individual risk of acquiring GBS is one in 1,000. So within 1 billion people, 17,000 cases of sporadic GBS per annum can be seen, and approximately 1,900 can present in any given six-week period. If we are to vaccinate about 4 billion person in one year, 68,000 cases of GBS would be expected to occur naturally within this time period. And of this, 13,000 would occur in the 10-week window period of the double-dose vaccine. Therefore, it is inevitable that these sporadic cases will appear temporarily associated with COVID-19 vaccines. There are multiple other vaccines previously alleged to be associated with GBS, such as hepatitis B, polio, and tetanus, but there are no causative links have been conclusively proven, despite these individual reports being widely quoted. And CDC has stated that the Independent Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices do not include a history of GBS as a precaution to vaccination with other vaccines. However, let, let's look at this spinal VAC, coronal VAC, contraindication list that is in their pencil. The clause number three, individuals with severe neurological conditions. In this example, given are transverse malitis, guillain Barry syndrome, and demyelinating disease. Of course, patients with acute transverse malitis acute DNA virus syndrome and acute demyelinating diseases. These are all severe neurological conditions. If patients present with acute conditions, treatment should be given to these patients first and vaccination at such will not be suitable. As in the case of ADAM, ADAM represents acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. Uh, It is a central nervous system demyelinating disorder it is said to have been associated with several vaccines, like rabies, smallpox, and enema. For most vaccines, the incidence rate is reported to be at 0.1 to 0.2 per 100,000 vaccinated individuals. And, however, there are only 5% of cases of ADEM are preceded by vaccination within one month prior to symptom onset. And so far, post-marketing, there is only one case report uh, published in which the a lady with no prior medical problems received inactivated COVID-19 vaccine developed acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. This, uh, the MRI on the right showed you, uh, is published in the journal, showing um, the areas of demyelination pointed by the red arrow. The patient recovered following IVIG treatment. For acute ischemic stroke, Pfizer, in Pfizer phase three trials, approximately 38,000 participants randomized to one-to-one vaccine and placebo with a median two month follow-up after those two. None of the patients died of central nervous system-related complications and only one participant in older placebo group had hemorrhagic stroke 15 days after those two and died the following day. As for Psynovac trial, the phase one and phase two published information documented, no serious adverse event reported in all three participants. To address the issue on hypertension after COVID vaccine, there's a published paper on American Heart Association describing stage 3 hypertension in patients after mRNA-based SARS-CoV-2 vaccination. It is a case series involved nine patients, seven females and two males, they all developed stage three hypertension within minutes of vaccination. Eight of them are symptomatic. However, eight of these patients had prior history of arterial hypertension, and most of them are on anti-hypertensive medication. However, the dose and type of medication was not mentioned in the paper. Eight of the patients received Pfizer, one had Modena, which was just introduced. One of the limitations of this paper is there was no pre-vaccination blood pressure value Doc, uh, documented, but the paper suggests that there might a fraction of hypertension patients may react with symptomatically significant increases in both systolic and diastolic blood pressure, more, but they acknowledge that more data will be required to affect our clinical practice. But they do raise the, the concern that pre-vaccination control of blood pressure is very important, and there might be a need to monitor Uh, for post-vaccination monitoring and symptom screening for elderly with hypertension, with history of hypertension or significant prior cardiovascular risk factor. Moving on uh, to the most popular topic of the day, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, CVST. It is uncommon around 0.22 to 1.57 per 100,000 patients. The it constitutes about 0.5 to 1% of all strokes. Bear in mind, this is uh, CVST rate in general. For CVST with thrombocytopenia, it is very rare. The median age of patients presenting with CVST is around 37 years old, female more than male, and the risk factor identified are oral contraceptive pills, pregnancy, postpartum, malignancy, and infection. Sign and symptoms. More common presentations are those that indicate increase in intracranial pressure, such as headaches, vomiting, papillary edema, and visual problems, focal neurological signs, seizures, and encephalopathy. The uncommon presentations are subarachnoid hemorrhage and cavernous sinus syndrome. The additional characteristic of patients with CDSC and thrombocytopenia after Jensen COVID 19, apart from those mentioned by Dr. Lowe, are uh, one of the patients had estrogen and progesterone use during the event. Three of them were obese, one had hypertension, one had hypothyroidism, and one had asthma. This is a table to show you um, the summary of all the the six patients um, to tell you that the initial features of all these patients presenting features are actually headaches, except for one patient, patient number six presented with back pain, and the late features, some of them had a focal neurological sign. As you look at the location of the CDSC, there are multiple areas of sinus venous was thrombosed, and the commonest one is transverse sinus, followed by sigmoid sinus. Some of the patients had bleeding as well, and uh, the subsequent column shows you that the platelet counts of all these patients range from 10,000 to 120,000. So this is an illustration of the areas of venous thrombosis uh, reported in patients with Jensen's COVID vaccine. The superior sagittal sinus, uh, inferior sagittal sinus, sigmoid transverse sinus, confluence, and straight sinuses and straight sinus. Moving on to the extra Zeneca vaccine, I just I won't be talking too much on the investigation and treatment of Sotuvina. Will be Uh, going in depth on that. But I just want to highlight that the median age again is of younger population, 36 years of age, range from 22 to 49 years old. Onset is for day 5 to day 16. Um, Whereas for those patients from Norway, there's a table here to highlight the age of them, 37 years old to 50. Females, 4 of them and 1 male. And all of the females had Cerebral venous thrombosis, whereas the male didn't have uh, CBT. The time of onset uh, from vaccination to admission was towards the end of the first week, entering second week. And again, the location of thrombosis in the um, cortical sinus, and there are multiple uh, tra- transverse sinus and venous sinuses involved, similar to those uh, seen in Jensen. Platelet uh, count, again, ranging from 10,000 to seventy thousand and And that's the end of my presentation. I just want to, for final message, a common side effects are usually common. Common things are common. And uh, if they present, they, us- they are usually short-lived and self-visiting. If they occur for a prolonged period of time, especially in terms of headaches, and if there are red sex syndrome, indicating there's, clue of increased intracranial hypertension. Perhaps you should remember what the, uh, some of the neurological issues that I've presented, and perhaps we can pick them up early and refer them uh, to the appropriate, for the appropriate treatment. And at the same time, remember to report them to the authorities. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ong. Um, again, if you have any questions, uh, please type in your questions in the Slido. And our final speaker for today is uh, Dr. Veena Sevaratnam, who is a hematologist um, working in uh, Ampang Hospital. Um, She's modestly asked me not to read out um, all the other um, uh, uh, things that um, she's involved in as well. So, um, uh, Dr. Veena, the stage is yours.
3: Uh, Thank you very much, Dr. Ben. I hope uh, you all can see my presentation. A very good afternoon to everyone. I know we've come towards the end. Just bear with us. This is the last presentation. Uh, I've been given the task to actually speak on the vaccine side effects, which is essentially hematology related. Uh, and this is my disclaimer, uh, whatever that we are presenting today or I'm presenting today is what we know of the, uh, today, which is 21st of April. So I've, uh, hematology related basically has got two uh, important topics uh, with, as far as the vaccine is concerned. One is a vaccine-induced pro-thrombotic immune thrombocytopenia, or also known as vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. And the next is immune thrombocytopenic purpura, which is related to the vaccine. Now, uh, I'll talk a little bit on the history of VITT, which is essentially the hype uh, now. The history began uh, on March 10, uh, 2021, when the European Medicines Agency reported four cases of thrombosis in Austria. And very soon after similar reports were gathered all around Europe, and by the 31st of March, uh, the UK's Medicine and Healthcare products regulatory agency had received about 79 reports of thrombosis, and of that, interestingly, 44 were uh, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. However, by then, millions of doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which which was thought to be the culprit, had been administered worldwide, and uh, it's important to note that some countries had no reported incidence of thrombotic complications. Now, moving on to how this uh, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia, uh, thrombotic thrombocytopenia vaccine, uh, sorry, antibody was uh, identified to begin with. So, uh, because it was uh, in the Europe and that part of the world, it was initially uh, investigated by the German researchers uh, from the Paul uh, Elrich Institute, which was led by uh, Dr. Andreas Grenacher. And he studied serum from 31 patients that were col- collected all over Europe because he had asked them to send the serums back to him. And, uh, this, uh, and these patients presented with thrombosis and thrombocytopenia post-vaccine. And they noticed that in this institute, the majority of these uh, patient samples contain antibodies that mimicked the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia antibodies, which were detected via the ELISA assay. And uh, some of these assays, uh, some of these serum, uh gave a positive HEPA or heparin-induced platelet aggregation uh, test that was positive. And uh, some those that were not positive uh, had a positive modified HEPA test. So this is the algorithm that was published uh, by the, the German group, right? So they, they just said they, they noticed that patients who had thrombocytopenia thrombosis, they looked for the antibody via the ELISA, and then subsequently went and did the functional assay. Now, since we, we don't know very much about BITT, and, but we know much more about HIT. Now, let's just see what HIT is all about. So essentially, it's a development of antibody against the heparin PF4 complex. So that's the antibody against that complex. And it develops about 5 to 10 days post-heparin ox- exposure, very much the same duration as uh, post-vaccine uh, exposure as well. Right, So the suspicion is based on the clinical predictive score called the 4T score and essentially uh, as the uh, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia, the confirmatory test is to detect the antibody that is against the heparin-PF4 complex. And you can also do a functional assay, which is the HEPA, the serotonin release assay, as well as a platelet aggregation test. And how do we treat this condition? Essentially, we know heparin is a culprit, so we stop the culprit and we find alternative anticoagulation for the patient. So as you can see, this diagram just shows that in order for heat to occur, you need need the presence of PF4 and heparin, which forms a complex and that binds the antibody that is present in the circulation or develops uh, develops after heparin exposure. And this heparin uh, sorry, antibody antigen complex then goes and causes platelet activation and, and therefore you have uncontrolled uh, un, uh, tra- uh, platelet activation causes thrombosis. Now, moving back to vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, what do we know so far? Essentially, uh, uh, what we know is that the general reported incidence of thrombosis is similar before and after a vaccine. So there's nothing really alarming if you look at the general reported incidence of thrombosis. However, there is an apparent risk of hit like thrombosis present, whereby there is thrombosis in the presence of thrombocytopenia. And this happens to occur about 4 to 20 days post-vaccination with an average of 14 days post-vaccination. And what is important or interesting to note is that the cases of thrombosis at unusual sites are relatively higher. Uh, As we can see, uh, more cases of uh, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis as well as splenic vein thrombosis have been reported. Having said that, there are also instances of arterial thrombosis seen. And one more uh, important or interesting criteria is that uh, it tends to be seen more in the younger female population as as has been alluded in the previous presentations. So now the incidence of VIP, what is the incidence? Uh, Once again, this is a moving target. It keeps changing from day to day, but it has been generally reported that there has been nine cases of uh, uh, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia are uh, in 7 million doses given, and this was uh, uh, reported on the 20th of April. As for the AstraZeneca vaccine, there have been about 220 reported cases in 34 million Europeans vaccinated. But having said that, this is reported cases, not confirmed cases. And uh, generally, people say that the incidence of VITT with, associated with AstraZeneca is about five in a million, right? And this incidence has not been established yet with the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. Now, why does this happen? Uh, well, we really do not know, but these are the biological po- possibilities. Uh, uh, basically, uh, some feel that is perhaps a direct relationship to the adenovirus factor that has been used, or a reaction to the spike protein. So, as we know, the AstraZeneca uses a chimpanzee uh, adenovirus, and that perhaps may bi- directly bind to the platelet for. Uh, that is a platelet factor 4 that is present in the body and causing this activation. But having said that, the viral quantity is very, very small, so makes it a little bit less unlikely, but it could be a potential trigger. Uh, the adenoviruses itself is known to cause thrombocytopenia, increased bond filibrand factor antigen, as well as platelet activation. So it's still possible. And uh, free DNA in the vaccine form multimolecular complexes with platelet factor 4, and therefore this binding to antibody in patients with previous history of Hit or induce antibodies against uh, heparin PFO, which is seen in mice models. But once again, this hypothesis is assuming that these patients have been exposed to heparin in the, in the past and have had hit in the past, uh, which is also something that we don't, don't see in our patients. So this is once again a hypothesis. Of course, the second hypothesis is perhaps there may be a rea- uh, reaction to the spike protein itself. But having said that, uh, there have been studies comparing the immunogenic epitomes of PF4 and, and the, vir- and the uh, spike protein before, and it, it, uh, it, this makes this hypothesis, it, and the reaction is not as, as what we see, and therefore makes this hypothesis less likely. So, in short, we really do not know. So, the difference between HIT and VIT, since there's so much a similarity that has been found, it's important that we, we, we differentiate this. Okay, So, HIT, as we know, is related to heparin exposure, Whereas vaccine-induced, it is not related to heparin exposure. In HIT, the antibody is directed against the heparin-PF4 complex. So you need to form a heparin-PF4 complex. In the absence of heparin, there is no heparin-PF4 complex and there is no thrombosis. Whereas um, in in vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, the antibody is only against platelet factor 4. So you don't need the presence of heparin to be there. Uh, in HIT, usually the HIPAA test is positive. The heparin induced platelet aggregation test is positive. Whereas in WIT, uh, based on the initial German studies, some of them have positive HIPAA uh, assays. And those without a positive HIPAA assay, there was a modified HIPAA test that was done and that was known to be positive. So you can have both positive, as, uh, positive HIPAA as well as modified HIPAA test. Okay, so in patients with HIT, which is heparin induced, there is a apparent allergy to heparin or hypersensitivity. And these patients usually, when they are in, uh, injected with heparin, they, they tend to develop a hypersensitive reaction or an allergic reaction. It could be an injection at the site or a systemic uh, kind of like a bronchospasm or angioedema or some sort of allergic reaction. Of course, this is not a very common thing that you see, but it's still possible. Whereas in VIT, there is no heparin allergy or hypersensitivity. In HIT, both small vessel and large vessel thrombosis uh, have been reported and whereby in HIT, uh, in uh, patients also present with skin necrosis, so the capillaries also get thrombosed. But having said that, in VIT, it seems to be that majority of the vessels involved are large vessels. It can be either arterial or venous, but, but we don't, I mean, so far there's no report of skin necrosis to the best of my knowledge. Uh, and lastly, uh, in HIT, Further heparin therapy is absolutely contraindicated, whereas in fit, the relationship to heparin therapy is still unknown. All right. So when do we suspect fit? Essentially, you need to have a recent uh, vaccine as administration, and uh, there are some papers that say less than twenty eight days. There's some papers that says you know recent, but essentially we say less than thirty days. And generally, usually more than uh, three days. So between four to 30 days would be the best uh, duration. And uh, most of them have prolonged periods of being unwell. So we all know that, I mean, having had the injections, most healthcare workers know that we after the second dose, we have uh, generalized body ache. Some people have flu-like symptoms and all that. So it usually lasts for 48 hours and or less. But if you have these symptoms that persist more than 48 hours, three days and beyond, then you need to. Uh, you know, look carefully and, and take these patients seriously, all right? So what are the symptoms? The warning signs are essentially, uh, as has been alluded before, if you need to look out for headache, things of blurring of vision, usually neurological signs, nausea, vomiting. Patients can come in with seizures. And uh, those presenting with splenic vein thrombosis then uh, can present with abdominal pain, also nausea and vomiting, all right? And of course, they can also have parmary embolism, or, or cardiovascular disease so you can have chest pain shortness of breath even dvt so look out for lower limb swelling and occasionally instead of thrombosis when they go into consumptive coagulopathy because all essentially dic when you activate your your uh, clotting cascade you you eventually tend to bleed so you need to look for bleeding petekiae and so uh, bruising and so on and so forth as well all right and majority of these patients uh, with with have been reported to have thrombocytopenia definitely the count of less than 150 they can have they can present with or without thrombosis and because uh, there is underlying subtle dic because there's an activation of the coagulation cascade the d dimers are very raised and usually the d dimers are more than 4000 all right and they can have and they usually have low or normal fibrinogen not high fibrinogen so this is the algorithm uh, of uh, i mean you can see many um, uh, associations, you know, they have actually come up with an algorithm on how to investigate. So if you have uh, you have to suspect VITT if a patient has been recently vaccinated, which is less than 30 days, they present with warning signs that has been mentioned pr- pr- prior to this, and they usually will have uh, thrombocytopenia signs or so thrombocytopenia or thrombosis. And what do you do next? You send for a full blood count looking for thrombocytopenia. And a full blood film basically to look whether these thrombocytopenia is a true thrombocytopenia. So once again, because it is, uh, it is you will have true thrombocytopenia. So you rule out platelet clumping and so on and so forth. The D-dimer will be very, very raised. And uh, you need to send a coagulation screen as well because sometimes they can go into consumptive coagulopathy. So occasionally, if they come in very late, the PT and the APTT can be prolonged as well. Uh, fibrinogen is another test that has been recommended once again to look for DIC, and fibrinogen is meant to be either normal or low. Uh, but this test may not be readily available in all hospitals. But it's something that you know if, if you don't have it, it's fine. But if you have it, it's great. And of course, look for look for evidence of thrombosis or bleeding via imaging, so a CT brain or a CT abdomen, with inclusive of uh, uh, either uh, with contrast, basically, because you're looking for thrombosis, uh, if possible. And once, once you have all this, then the confirmatory diagnosis is essentially to, send for, to look for the antibody against PFO. And it has to be ELISA-based. Uh, ideally, we think, I mean, basically, because it's, it's, uh, it's labor-intensive, ELISA-based assay, and it's, uh, perhaps the incidents are very low, perhaps something that is centralized uh, would be more cost-effective than do, doing it uh, in, in every hospital. Okay, so the clinical subgroup based on the results or the symptoms that you have. So you have an onset, anything more than 30 days is not VITT. You may may not have thrombosis. If the platelet count is more than 150 and the D dimer is very low, this makes the suspicion of VIT, uh, vaccine induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, very, very, very low. And if the, especially so if the fibrinogen is normal or high, right? But if you have, of course, conversely, if you fall into the duration of four to 30 days, with or without thrombosis doesn't matter, with thrombocytopenia and very, very high D-dimer levels, as well as normal or low fibrinogen, then this makes the suspicion of v- VITT extremely high. And of course, you can say highly probable VITT. You need to confirm it by, via doing the PF4 antibodies, right? The anti-PF4 antibodies. And somewhere in between there, when you have uh, a, a bit of a gray zone, which is probable VITT, you firstly, uh, you can you, you, you still need to investigate. You can send for the antibodies because it falls under a gray zone. More of call for help if you are in doubt. Okay. So how do you detect this anti or antibody? Um, so uh, just, just a brief introduction. There are many established tests that are available for HIT, for heparin-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. You have the ELISA method, the particle agglutination method, as well as functional assays. And most rapid tests are designed to detect the heparin pf4 complex. So there are some rapid tests that are available for the hit uh, uh for hit detection essentially to detect just the heparin pf4 complex. However, for VITT, there's no association with heparin and therefore no heparin pf4 complex and the antibody is directed exclusively to against uh platelet factor 4 and therefore only the ELISA assay as well as the functional assay have been shown to be associated with VITT. So one, I just want to, to uh, emphasize that essentially you need to look for an ELISA test, test, you need to do the ELISA test, which is the antibody test and not a particle agglutin- agglutination test or a, or a kind of like a rapid test uh, when trying to look for this anti-PF4 antibodies because in, in the European countries it has been shown that this antibody was not detected using these uh, rapid test methods, all right? So, uh, once the, we we run this test uh, in Hospital Ampang, so I can let you know that uh, usually uh, one kid can run about thirty samples at one run, and we offer it in the MRKH in Hospital Ampang. And uh, I mean, we are okay. We are happy to to do this if we get. Uh, you know, we have to do uh, some amount of uh, additional training and maybe some additional funding to do this, but. If when we do operate as a uh, for VI, for suspicion of VITT, what we suggest is that uh, we get two plain tubes and one EDTA from patients, the suspected patients. It ideally has to be a fresh sample, which is less than four hours uh, age-wise. So, from drawing of the sample to receiving it at the lab, it ideally has to be less than four hours. And if it cannot reach our lab within four hours, then we would suggest that the sample be spun, froze, uh, freeze, and send frozen to us. Uh, it meant to be kept at night between nine uh, minus twenty to minus eighty, and send frozen in dry ice to us. And we have suggested, or we have thought, uh, discussed that we will run the sample, run it once we reach thirty samples, or uh, once a week, whichever comes first. And of course, this is subject to uh, change, depends on the um, supply and demand to a certain extent. So if there are, if we if we have more demand, then of course the frequency will be higher. And if we do it only once a week, then the expected TAT is five working days. But I'll, however, if we run it more frequently, then the uh, TAT would be lesser. All right. Now, so that is in terms of making the diagnosis or the confirmatory di- diagnosis of B- BITT. How do you manage a patient? Now, once again, I would like to emphasize that with the clinical suspicion, you should start treatment. Don't wait confirmatory diagnosis. If you have a strong clinical suspicion in the presence of thrombosis, just treat. And how do you treat them? You give very high doses of IVIG uh, urgently as soon as possible. And the recommended dose is one gram per kilogram for two days. Uh, you It is recommended to avoid platelet transfusion because you know that the platelets are the problem. So you give more, more platelets, you may cause more problems. Uh, however, if you do need to administer, administer platelet for whatever reason, please administer it after or with IVIG concurrently. Now... Uh, many many guidelines have actually recommended to avoid heparin, but once again, there is no clear, defin- uh, there is no clear association between heparin and BITT. This uh, advice of avoiding heparin is basically based on what we understand from HITT. But once again, there's no clear association, but for now to be on the safe uh, grounds, we have suggested, or it has been suggested, that we have to avoid heparin. And if the patient has got thrombosis, the safest thing is to start non-heparin anticoagulant, and of course, this is on the basis of balancing the bleeding versus the thrombosis So, if the patient has got a massive bleed, uh, uh, then you may want to uh, uh, hold back a little. But if the bleed is because of a thrombus, then you still need to start anticoagulation at full dose. Okay. So uh, before starting anticoagulation, it has been advised to make sure the fibrinogen is kept at more than 1.5 gram per deciliter. How do you do that? You transuse cryoprecipitate here in Malaysia because we do not have fibrinogen concentrate at the moment. Uh, In the event that IVIG cannot be given urgently, you can administer steroids or you can also administer steroids concurrently with IVIG if you think the case of VITT is very, very severe. Uh, it has been said that plasma exchange may be useful. Uh, essentially, this is in the concept of you removing your antibodies that are uh, problematic, uh, and uh, you and it's recommended that you use plasma and not albumin. So I guess the rationale of using plasma is that you, so that you can also replace your fibrinogen uh, at the same time, and therefore you know it, it it's killing two birds at one go. All right. Uh, anti and uh, thrombopoietic a- uh, agents uh, agonists should be avoided in these cases. So uh, how uh, a little bit more management of the anticoagulation. So basically you're meant to use non-cross-reacting anticoagulant and the non-cross-reacting anticoagulant that are available uh, worldwide is fondaparinox, denopronoid, uh, nereproid, Agatruvan, and doax. But in Malaysia, you only have fondaparinox and doax. So these are the two options that you can use. Of course, in a patient who's severely ill, perhaps you, you would probably choose the parental uh, anticoagulant as compared to the oral uh, anticoagulant. So perhaps fondaparinux might be the, the uh, anticoagulation of choice. Okay? However, there's no clear evidence, once again, to suggest relationship with heparin use at the moment. So for the moment, we say don't use heparin, but this may change in the future. And once again, as I mentioned earlier, when you're using anticoagulation try and keep platelets more than 30 and fibrinogen more than 1, uh, 1. 1.5 grams per deciliter keeping platelets more than 30 is to give IVIG and transfuse platelets and fibrinogen is by giving prior precipitate so in the presence of thrombosis you should give the patient a treatment dose of the anticoagulant uh, and this is meant to be continued for a total duration of three months and then stop once again this is extrapolated from what we know from hit right and in the absence of thrombosis, prophylaxis dose is sufficient and if you think that the antibodies have settled and, all, and, and has calmed down, usually prophylaxis is recommended for a total duration of six weeks or while the patient or in fact longer if the patient is still in hospital. Okay so key points uh, to remember when managing VITT, if the patient needs a neurosurgical uh, intervention that shouldn't, shouldn't be delayed if it is deemed necessary, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you need to transfuse platelet, please transfuse platelet, but give IVIG before or during platelet transfusion. So, if the patient presents with an arterial thrombosis and it was in a healthy uh, patient who did not have any history of atherosclerosis in the past, anticoagulation is the preferred method of coagulation, and you can eventually switch to antiplatelets when the fibrinogen and the D dimers and platelets have normalized because you're dealing with the arteries. Uh, and if you're dealing with a patient where the bleeding risk and, the, and it's a bit dicey, the bleeding risk and the, and the clotting risk is a bit dicey, then you can use a lower dose of fondaparinux or DOACs initially, if the, and then subsequently increase to either treatment dose or prophylactic dose later, a uh, full treatment dose or full prophylactic dose later when they, uh, when they are better, uh, as these patients are highly pro-thrombotic. Uh, and once again, the second dose of vaccine is contraindicated in these patients, all right? So this is all I have about VITT. Now, moving on to immune thrombocytopenia purpura, which is vaccine-related, all right? So this has been reported in KCVs with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. It is once again extremely rare, uh, and there's no clear relationship between, with VITT at this point in time. Right, the onset is about between, between two, five to 23 days post vaccine, and uh, it has been uh, what you call uh, seen in patients with previously unknown to have ITP, though it, it, it has been postulated that it can temporarily worsen patients with underlying ITP. But this is just a postulation, right? And patients present mainly with bleeding symptoms, uh, which is essentially petechiae, bruising, mucosal bleeding. And uh, what is uh, important to note is actually the platelet count with ITP, seen in ITP, which is vaccine-induced, is actually much, much lower than the patients with VITT. Because VITT also presents with thrombocytopenia, but um, the uh, ITP with vaccine, uh, you can actually see platelets up to single digits. So it can be much, much more severe in terms of thrombocytopenia. And the treatment is essentially the same, which is IVIG steroids, and some some case reports have even used rituximab, right? So in severe bleeding, when you're dealing with ITP, uh, then platelet transfusion is advocated with concurrent administration of uh, immunosuppressive agents. And uh, it's just to bear in mind that when you use aggressive immunosuppressive agents, this may jeopardize the immune response. Uh, required for antibody production intended for the vaccine because you are causing immunosuppression so you can't mount an immune response so that may jeopardize the whole idea of the vaccine but having said that you have no choice but to do it and uh, so, so it's good to bear in mind that these patients may not be protected right and whether second dose of vaccine should be administered in this cohort of patients remain unanswered perhaps will depend on the severity of the initial response and the patients may require informed consent. I don't know, but it's, it's still uh, a little bit gray, okay? So how do you manage a patient with underlying ITP? Because there have been some postulation that it may worsen ITP. So there's no clear evidence to show that ITP will worsen, this is just a postulation, and some reported cases show that there was a transient worsening of thrombocytopenia. And this is a, just a suggestion, Basically, you can take a baseline uh, FBC before vaccine administration. Ensure the platelet counts are more than fifty. This is in the um, uh, Malaysian Society of Haematology recommendation as well. You know, ensure that the platelet counts are more than fifty, and uh, tell your patients to watch for signs and symptoms of thrombocytopenia. So, if they've got worsening petechiae uh, or mucosal bleeding or you know bruising, then come to the hospital and uh, seek advice immediately if these new bleeding symptoms occur. So I've come to my last slide of my presentation. In conclusion, there's significant temporal relationship between vaccine and uh, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia as well as ITP. And the the best thing is that the treatment for both are the same. So we both give IDIG or steroids, essentially immunosuppressive agents. Clinicians should always have a high index of suspicion uh, in order to be able to uh, pick this up in patients that present to you uh, there's a saying that says the eyes doesn't see what the mind doesn't know. So basically, you need to have a very high clinical suspicion. Uh, please report all suspected cases. Reporting is very, very important because if you don't report timely, then you know there will be underreporting and we really wouldn't know the real uh, incidence or the real, uh, real world data. right? So it's okay to overreport occasionally so that investigations can be done. And please call for help when in doubt. With that, I thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Veena. Um, okay, uh, so we have come to our time for uh, the, the Q&A session. We've probably got about 15 minutes or so to handle the questions. Now, um, uh, please put in your questions via Slido and um, we will try to answer as many of these uh, clinical questions as possible. Um, as mentioned earlier, we will not be addressing any policy-related questions as this would be beyond our scope of uh, clinical practice. Yeah? So, um, I will go to some of the questions that have already made its way up Slido. I see um, one question for Dr. Lo. Um, um Dr. Low, for HIV patients who are currently treated with heart therapy, will the drugs affect the potency or efficacy of the vaccines?
1: Okay, I will take the questions. Now, with regards to HIV patients that on treatment, there's no drug-drug interaction per se between the vaccine and the ARVs. So, But what we need to explain to the patient is if they have a very low CD 4 counts, what we don't know is the efficacy of the vaccine because your body may not be able to more adequate respond toward towards the vaccine because of the, the low CD 4 counts. But there is no drug-drug interactions.
0: Okay, Um, the next question I will also ask, um, Dr. Lowe, we heard of some people who have died shortly after COVID vaccination. Um, how does KKM decide um, that they didn't die of COVID vaccine side effects or adverse reactions? Dr. Low, any comments? Um,
1: okay, as what we try to highlight in this webinar, please report all the adverse events, severe adverse event in particular, If you happen to know about death or any severe adverse event, please report immediately. As I mentioned earlier, we have to report within 24 hours, followed with a complete written report, whereby all the reports were handed up to the central, and there will be pharmacovigilance committees whereby they will look into the report and work closely with the hospital to investigate the cost to see whether that is only a coincidence or is a causal relationship between the vaccine and the death or the end event. So meaning that we need to accumulate a lot of informations, okay send it up, discuss, let the pharmacovigilance committee investigate. Then they will come up with the conclusions. Uh, of course, I think they will look into various scenarios okay, from the presentations of the vaccine uh, recipients, Okay, and the history as well as the risk factors of the vaccines recipient as well as comparing with the background rates of the incidence.
0: Thanks, Dr. Lili. Um, Next question, uh, perhaps I will give it to Dr. Ong. Um, Could the hypertension post-vaccination be due to pain or soreness over the injection site? Would you recommend prophylactic um, painkillers for those with hypertension?
2: Well, patients with hypertension, there are a a lot of causes that can cause someone's blood pressure to increase after vaccination. It will have to be depending on how the patient's blood pressure control prior to the vaccination. And of course, stress, anxiety, pain can also increase their blood pressure. Prophylaxis painkiller, as already recommended by CDC, it is not recommended and therefore uh, due to the the, uh, reasons that I've stated um, before. But if the patient had pain after the uh, vaccination, um, they can proceed to take either paracetamol or uh, N6 uh, at their own preference.
0: Um, perhaps if I could add, I think um, uh, all of us in the panel have been vaccinated and I think uh, most of um, the healthcare workers out there um, listening to this have been vaccinated and I must say that, um, yes, although um, after the vaccine, uh, uh, many of us had uh, arm pain a few hours before, but the vaccination itself, I thought was fairly, the, the pain was really very small. Uh, and the, the, I mean, the needle going in. I thought that one was a uh, 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 that the pain was very little, so I don't know. I personally wouldn't suggest the um, painkiller before there uh, any uh, any vaccination. Yeah. Um. Okay. One of the questions was um, what if a patient um is on warfarin and has an INR of more than four? How many days should the drug be stopped prior to the vaccination? Is another INR measurement required. Um, Dr. Bina? you comfortable to take this?
3: Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. So basically, uh, I guess if you stop it for about three to four days, INR should come down. Uh, I, I think uh, if you've had a very stable INR in the background, it's, it's relatively okay to uh, go ahead without doing another INR measurement. But I think it's always um, prudent to have one prior because you need to know once once you inject yourself, once you get the vaccination, you want to then start back back warfarin, and you want to know what your INR is prior to starting, so that you have a rough estimate or rough gauge. So I would say stop for three to four days, get an INR. If it's less than is between two to three, then um, you can actually go and, and get your vaccination, and then and then once there's no problems, no bleeding, start taking the uh, warfarin the same at the same dose that on that evening itself. I hope that is clear.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Bina. Yeah. Um, okay, there's a question on um how many COVID vaccinated people in Malaysia have had severe side effects. I don't think any, um, uh, any of us have got the uh, have got these uh, the numbers before us currently, because I think these numbers will go up to the um uh, through through the yeah, AEFI, um, adverse events following immunization pathway. They will go up to the um, NPRA um, uh, committee, the Pharma, um, the um, National um, Pharmacological Regulatory Authorities. So they will be compiling this uh, um, severe side effects, and then, um, and then uh, uh, once it reaches a few. Um, uh, cases, then they will be called, they, they will call the panels to look through those cases. So I don't think we've got any um, figures for you currently. Um, let's see what other questions are there. Can we get the email again? I think it can be posted um, when we when we um, report uh, when, we, when we send out the slides. Um, okay.
3: Uh, sorry, while, while you're looking through the question, I just wanted to add on something about patients who are warfarin or those with higher bleeding. Uh, tendency, please make sure that you compress the injection site for at least ten minutes, and uh, and make sure that you know keep looking out for any signs of uh, a hematoma after that. But it's very very rare people have actually taken uh, the vaccine while on warfarin without any complications. But having said that, it's always good to keep an eye uh, and and make sure you compress immediately uh, post uh, injection for at least ten minutes. Sorry, just wanted to add that on.
0: Doctor Ong, what would you recommend for a patient who had migraine for seven straight days after uh, first dose of Pfizer uh, vaccine? Is it safe to take the second dose?
2: All right. Um. So migraine attacks uh, can uh, um, happen or flare up uh, after the vaccination. Typically, if they do occur, they occur uh, around the first thirty-six hours after the vaccination. Um, and during this time, uh, the patient, depending on the situation on whether the migraine attack is mild, moderate, or severe. If it is mild, then paracetamol and rest might be adequate. If it is moderate, um, then n um, as well as Maxalon. If it is severe, then certain patients might already have to be on somatriptan, It's not contraindicated to take during the attack. And it's very important to treat the migraine early rather than sit on it and do nothing um, because otherwise uh, migraine attack may progress and um, the patient might have a uh, full-blown migraine attack, which is very difficult to treat later on. And um, most of the migraine, uh, based on uh, expert opinions, they do last for three to five days. However, if uh, the headache lasts longer than that, perhaps that is when we have to consider whether or not the patient might have other signs and symptoms of red flag that we should look into and then um, probably advise them to go to the nearest hospital for checkup and um, that might be safer than to continue to treat uh, the condition as a migraine flare. That's my opinion.
0: Um, Dr. Wiener, um, uh, is the PF4 test indicated for high-risk groups uh, before um, AZ vaccination and in view of possible IBIG use should um, is that vaccination be done in hospitals?
3: Okay, so so uh, as we know, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia is the vaccine induced. So basically, you, you, you expect you expect that these antibodies wouldn't be present prior to vaccination because it's a it's an immune trigger basically to the vaccine. So there's no real indication to do it prior to vaccination because it is something that develops after being exposed to the vaccine. Uh, secondly, is that uh, use of IV? I mean, it, essentially, all these occurs uh, after three days, three three days to up to thirty days. So uh, there is no real indication that these tests need to be done. Uh, in I mean, sorry, this vaccination needs to be done in the hospital. Number one, of course, if they need treatment, they need to be treated in the hospital. Number two, uh, and number three is that there is no currently no um, uh, guide or or you know inclination of. Uh, who will develop it and who wouldn't develop it. So it still remains a question mark and we cannot uh, identify those at high risk of developing B I T T at this moment. So uh, we will have to just go on with the vaccine as uh, vaccination is how we would, but look out knowing at the back of our heads that, that this is a possibility and, and look out for it. That, that would be an advice.
0: Um, okay. Uh... And maybe since I've got you on the line as well, uh, Dr. Bina, this last one is, um, is the ELISA test for... Um, um, oh, sorry, I think I accidentally clicked it off. I, 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 I saw it.
3: Yeah, I, I saw it. It, it, it. Was it only in Hospital Ampang and whether other states have it? So to the best of my knowledge, uh, there isn't any uh, available in other states. Uh, we have been offering the seed essay for a long time and no other place in, in the country at this point in time. Uh, I don't know whether other uh, labs are planning to do it in the future, but uh, at, at the current moment, it's only Hospital Ampang. And it's at our lab, the uh, Clinical Hematology Reference Rep, MLKH.
0: Thanks, Dr. Vida. Um, Dr. Loh, um there was a question for you, which I can't find now. Um, what precautions should we take for those who have an underlying medical? History like the diabetes and hypertension, IHD, if they receive their vaccines?
1: All right. If a person were to have all these concomitant medical conditions, if you remember my slide or presentations by Dr. Ben last week, they are considered to be under the priority group, meaning that they should get the priority to be vaccinated. So, uh, meaning there's no contraindications. Okay, if you have all these medical conditions, you please, I mean, you are encouraged to sign up okay, and volunteer yourself for the vaccinations.
0: Um, just on a personal note, my 90-year-old father with uh, diabetes, hypertension and IHD had his uh, vaccine done yesterday. Um. Okay, is it true that, um. okay, Um. oops, sorry, I seem to keep pressing the wrong buttons. I think um. there were some reports about NSAIDs not being recommended after, after um, uh, uh, a vaccine. Um, do you have any comments about that, uh, Dr. Lo?
1: Not that I know of. Uh, that uh, NSA is contraindicated post-vaccinations, to my knowledge. Anyone can help me, but to my knowledge, there's no contraindications at all. But of course, you wouldn't take NSAID unless it's deemed indicated, for example, severe pain.
0: Okay. Um... There are some questions on um, pregnancy and breastfeeding. I think that will be handled in the subsequent, um, I think in the last uh, webinar that we have two weeks from now. Um, And and some questions as well on allergies. uh, That will be covered in the... in the cover them next week. Um, Otherwise... uh, I think um, maybe for a last question, um, um, I have arrhythmia recently. I was refused vaccination in a community center and told to, uh, told to go to a hospital. How will the arrangement process be for my case? Mm. Um, Dr. Lo, are you comfortable with
1: that? I tried my best because I think every state, perhaps are, their system might be slightly different here and there. So I suggest that perhaps you may have to go back to the uh, healthcare facility that has been taking care of you so the doctors will do the PVA assessment, pre-vaccination assessment. So from the assessment, they'll decide whether you're a suitable uh, candidate to receive the vaccination in community versus the hospital. So the answers mean that someone will have to carry out the PVA assessment.
0: Right. Um, Again, on a personal note, I, I personally... Um, I have encountered a few patients with arrhythmias, I've discussed this with uh, some of the cardiologists and all of them are unanimous in saying arrhythmias, no problem, go ahead and uh, receive your uh, vaccine, you actually don't need to have any uh, pre-vaccine assessment. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, I think uh, there's a few requests for the email for reporting for any adverse events, I will... I will work with the organizers to make sure that that information comes out. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Lo, do you would you happen to have that email address right out? And I'm not sure how we can post it, but it is on your slides, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I didn't spell out the email address incomplete in my slide, but you just have to go to the NPRA website. So you click under consumer. From there, you look for the AEFI reporting. Yeah, you should download the hard copy of the form. If you're in, you can either submit online or post it or email it or even fax it.
0: Thanks, Dr. Lo. And for those of you who are working in um, hospitals, um, uh, reach out to your your pharmacist colleagues. Um, All of them know about uh, um, NPRA um, uh, and, uh, and the forms that are needed to fill in whenever you have an adverse, severe adverse reaction um, uh, to any medications or vaccines for that matter. All right. Okay, with that, I think I'll bring the session to a close. Thank you very much again um, uh, to the three speakers, uh, Dr. Lo, Dr. Ong, Dr. Vina. Um, Do join us again next week at the same time. Next week's topic will be on allergies and anaphylaxis concerns about COVID-19 vaccines and um, so they will concentrate on the risk of allergies and anaphylaxis from studies and uh, recognizing how do we recognize anaphylaxis and setting up your vaccination center to prepare for anaphylaxis and lastly a quick overview on management of anaphylaxis. Okay with that I thank you and we will see you next.